out of Austin, Texas. You're listening to the Unsanctioned Citizen Podcast. Here's your host, Sheila Dean. Good afternoon. It is raining. It's raining a lot. Quite the deluge today here in Austin, Texas. It is day seven. Last seven days. Last week of the hundred days of Colin. Can you believe it? It's almost over. So we're going to be reading from the trial of Julian Assange. I'm just going to go ahead and invite some people. Here we go. All the people have been invited. So we're going to read from chapter 12. Public opinion begins to turn. <clears throat> Setting the record straight. To the broader public around the world, the rather subdued discontinuation of the Swedish, Swedish investigation came as a surprise. For more than nine years, the prosecution authority had been able to deflect criticism as to the paralysis of, of its investigation by accusing Assange of evading justice. But with his arrest by British police on 11 April of 2019, the tables had turned. Suddenly Assange was at the disposal of the Swedish authorities and they still had a comfortable window of 16 months to interview and formally charge him with the alleged rape of S. But six months after reopening the investigation, prosecutor Person threw in the towel and publicly admitted the evidence at her disposal was not sufficient to initiate a criminal trial against Assange, nor was there any prospect of improving the evidentiary situation by interviewing him or taking any other investigative measures? After years of being fed an unbending rape suspect narrative, the public was confused and divided. No arrest warrant, no extradition request, no interview, and worst of all, no prosecutable evidence? Since presenting my preliminary findings in May of 2019, I had been trying to raise awareness of the enormous implications of this case for the prohibition of torture and ill treatment, for press freedom and freedom of information, and for extraterritorial overreach of U.S. jurisdiction, and indeed for democracy and the rule of law. But the official Swedish narrative of Assange as a fugitive rape suspect was so firmly entrenched in the public mind it was very difficult to expose its instrumentalization for the purpose of political persecution without being misunderstood as relativizing the importance of prosecuting sexual offenses. The fact that the Swedish authorities refused any constructive dialogue in the matter further complicated my investigation and required me to repeatedly adjust, clarify, and supplement my conclusions in order to accommodate the new evidence. Particularly in the early stages of my investigation, I was criticized by many who genuinely feared for the hard-fought gains of the women's rights movement. I was censured by long-term colleagues, lost a research assistant, and received letters of protest from women's rights organizations, lawyers, academics, and even one of the two Swedish women. I did my best to address these legitimate concerns, to clarify my position, and to resolve misunderstandings. Most importantly, I made unequivocally clear that my criticism was in no way directed against the women or their rights and integrity, nor against the description of the alleged conduct as serious sexual offenses, but solely against the authorities 
and their deliberate abuse of the legal process for the purposes of political persecution. In fact, I considered A and S to be victims of state instrumentalization as much as Assange himself. It was also from established women's rights organizations such as the London-based Women Against Rape and from hundreds of rape victims and their relatives that I received the most determined public support. They stood up for justice and truth in the case of Julian Assange. They rejected the deliberate instrumentalization of a rape narrative for the persecution of an inconvenient dissident. When sexual violence on the part of the soldiers and agents of the same states was routinely hushed up, and victims of domestic and sexual violence can rarely rely on effective protection, but are often doubly humili humiliated and traumatized by inadequate attitudes, policies, and practices. In fact, at the time, I was working on a report on domestic violence from the perspective of the prohibition of torture and ill-treatment, which I presented to the UN General Assembly in New York on October of 2019. What most shocked me during my extensive consultations on the topic, besides the enormous scale of which the violence and cruelty to which women, and children especially, are exposed in their own homes worldwide, was the nonchalance with which this enormously destructive form of torture and ill-treatment is routinely trivialized, ignored, or even instrumentalized by governments, even though it has produced more death, suffering, and injustice than all the wars in human history combined. A first breakthrough. The collapse of the Swedish case and the prosecutor's formal acknowledgement of the lack of evidence put an abrupt end to the official narrative of the fugitive rape suspect, which for so long had haunted all efforts to raise awareness of the persecution of Assange. So far, with the laudable exception of the American magazine Newsweek, none of the established Western media organizations had covered my Assange investigation in any serious detail. None had even challenged the veracity of my findings in an in-depth interview, and none had confronted the relevant governments with the disturbing questions raised by my interventions. Now, suddenly the path was cleared to once again see Julian Assange as an individual entitled to human rights and dignity, as a publisher who had exposed evidence of war crimes, torture, and corruption, and as a courageous dissident who had dared to stand up to the most powerful states in the world. If there was no evidence for the rape allegations, perhaps the other accusations needed to be questioned as well? Could it be that Assange had been wrongly accused of being a hacker, a spy, a traitor, and a narcissist? The increase of public interest opened new opportunities to communicate the findings of my investigation to a wider audience. I spoke at the European Parliament, the German Bundestag, the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe, and the Swiss Parliament. I also appeared at public events and gave interviews. A first decisive breakthrough came along with a long and brilliantly conceived interview by journalist Daniel Reiser in the Swiss online newspaper Republic, published on 31 January 2020 in both German and English, which made my findings accessible to a wide audience and triggered renewed interest in the mainstream media, particularly in the German-speaking world. 
Since the beginning of my investigation, I had also been in direct contact with a growing network of individual supporters, from outspoken celebrities like Roger Waters, Pamela Anderson, Vivian Westwood, and Joe Corey, to progressive politicians like Yanis Varoufakis, Seven Dagyelin, uh, and Tulsi Gabbard, to fearless publicists like John Pilger, Stephania Marisi, and Craig Murray. The contacts further included Assange's lawyers and family members, WikiLeaks staff, and countless activists, journalists, professionals, and former officials who, for various reasons, were able and willing to contribute important pieces to the puzzle of my investigation. For reasons of source protection, publishing a full list of their names here would be neither wise nor appropriate. With the collapse of the Swedish case, my network suddenly expanded deep into the political mainstream to include personalities such as German Vice Chancellor Sigmar Gabriel, investigative author Gunther Walroff, Council of Europe Commissioner for Human Rights Dunja Mijatovic, I hope I got that right, and Swedish Bar Association Secretary General Anne Ramberg. Their support convinced others and triggered a worldwide surge in solidarity and protest throughout 2020, including high-profile calls for Assange's release on the part of the former heads of state, former ministers, as well as various associations of lawyers, medical doctors, and journalists. One by one, entire organizations started to change course, protest against Assange's persecution and demand his release, including Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, Reporters Without Borders, the Committee to Protect Journalists, the International Bar Association, and the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe. From February 2020, among other things, I also supported an initiative by the government of the Canton of Geneva, championed by Member of Parliament John Roussiaud, to convince the Swiss federal government to issue a humanitarian visa to Assange. Should the British courts refuse Assange's extradition to the United States, or should the U.S. and the U.K. both agree to release Assange on humanitarian grounds, a face-saving way out for all parties, this humanitarian visa would allow Assange to come to Switzerland for a rehabilitation stay at the University Hospitals of Geneva. Until early March 2020, I literally gave several interviews every single day, had journalists and filmmakers in my office, spoke on video conferences, and traveled to London several times for public speeches and private meetings with Australian parliamentarians, American and British documentary makers, lawyers, and assorted celebrities. The escalating media interest was further fueled by the beginning of Assange's extradition trial on 24 February of 2020. But then came the COVID-19 pandemic, and shortly thereafter, the global lockdown. The world now had other preoccupations besides the fate of Julian Assange and the broader implications of his case. Nevertheless, overshadowed by the destructive force of the pandemic, the benign seed of truth, too, had been planted and began to spread around the world. I was convinced that it was only a matter of time before the critical mass required for a worldwide change of public opinion would be reached. Rapporteur turned dissident. Ugh. For me personally, 2019 and 2020 had been years of disillusion and resolve. The disillusion concerned the credibility of the Western democracies as allies in the fight for human rights, the reliability of our constitutional checks and balances to oversee the exercise of governmental power, 
and the practical effectiveness of UN mechanisms in protecting human rights. But this loss of illusions also gave me the resolve to put myself on the line and confront the international community of states with its hypocrisy. The same international community that had appointed me as UN Special Rapporteur in 2016 when a senior security policy advisor to the Swiss government, I was still very much a part of the system. I had taken my mandate literally, had exposed torture and ill-treatment wherever I encountered it in my work, and had refused to bend to the rules for reasons of personal or political expediency. Now, with my investigation into the Julian, Julian Assange case, I had inadvertently become a dissident within the system itself. Nothing illustrated this transformation more emblematically than my brief public address on 27 November 2019 at the Brandenburg Gate in Berlin. Sorry, T. On Pariser Platz stood a sculpture by the Italian artist David Dormino. Cast in bronze, Edward Snowden, Julian Assange, and Chelsea Manning stood on three chairs, silent and upright, unbowed. Next to them was a fourth chair, empty, inviting people to step up and take a stand. Very appropriately, Dormino had titled the sculpture Anything to Say? Several politicians had already taken the floor at a lectern next to it. As I listened to them, the fourth chair of the sculpture looked glaringly abandoned. So when it was my turn to speak, I was handed the microphone. I did not hesitate, but stepped onto the fourth chair. From up there, I looked across the square, the huge U.S. Embassy to my right, and felt as if I were doing something forbidden. I was aware that I had crossed another line with, with this symbolic gesture that physically placed me in line with the three most persecuted dissidents in, of the Western world. It was not that I had overstepped my mandate. On the contrary, given the refusal of the involved governments to cooperate with my office, this really was the only way I could still exercise my mandate with independence and effectiveness. If I could no longer rely on the governments currently in place to live up to their international obligations, I had to directly address the people of the UN member states, because it was they who were the ultimate sovereign and had collectively committed to respecting and protecting fundamental human rights at all times. If my mandate was not to degenerate into a fig leaf for a dysfunctional system of self-deception, I could not be intimidated but had to speak truth to power, not only with words, but whenever possible, also with powerful symbolic gestures. This is what I had to say. For decades, political dissidents have been welcomed by the West with open arms because in their fight for human rights, they were persecuted by dictatorial regimes. Today, however, Western dissidents themselves are forced to seek asylum elsewhere, such as Edward Snowden in Russia, or until recently Julian Assange at the Ecuadorian Embassy in London. For the West itself has begun to persecute its own dissidents, to subject them to draconian punishments in political show trials, and to imprison them as dangerous terrorists in high-security prisons under conditions that can only be described as inhuman and degrading. Our governments feel threatened by Chelsea Manning, Edward Snowden, and Julian Assange because they are whistleblowers, journalists, and human rights activists who have provided solid evidence for the abuse, corruption, and war crimes of the powerful, for which they are now being systematically defamed and persecuted. 
They are the political dissidents of the West, and their persecution is today's witch hunt because they threaten the privileges of an un unconstrained state power that has gone out of control. The case of Manning, Snowden and, Snowden, and Assange, and others are the most important test of our time for the credibility of Western rule of law and democracy and our commitment to human rights. In all these cases, it is not about the person, the character, or possible misconduct of these dissidents, but about how our governments deal with revelations about their own misconduct. How many soldiers have been killed or sorry, held accountable for the massacre of civilians shown in the video collateral murder? How many Asians for the systemic torture of terror suspects? How many politicians and CEOs for the corrupt and inhumane machinations that have been brought to light by our dissidents? That's what this is about. It is about the integrity of the rule of law, the credibility of our, our democracies, and ultimately about our own human dignity and the future of our children. Let us never forget that. The sculpture subsequently toured Europe and almost exactly 18 months later I once again stood on that bronze chair on the occasion of the Geneva call to free Assange launched by the Swiss Press Club on 4th and 5th June 2021. Julian Assange was still isolated in Belmarsh and his extradition trial had reached the appeal stage in the British High Court. But public opinion had evolved since that first speech in Berlin. By my side were not only Assange's partner, Stella Morris, and many other longtime supporters of Assange, but also Yves Dacord, a former director general of the ICRC, Christophe Delors, the secretary general of Reporters Without Borders, Carlo Somuraga, Somaruga, sorry, member of the Swiss Federal Parliament, and even the mayor of Geneva, Frédéric Perler, who had powerfully proclaimed that Assange has sacrificed his liberty in order to protect ours. Six months earlier, on 4th January of 2021, a lower court in Britain had already set a legal precedent, effectively criminalizing investigative journalism worldwide, and Assange's state of health was declining. So when I stepped up on that fourth chair for the second time in June of 2021, Justice Stone's throw away from the majestic Palais Wilson that hosts the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, I spoke with an increased sense of urgency. Ladies and gentlemen, we are in Geneva. It is the city of the United Nations, the city of the Red Cross, and it is the city of human rights. I am standing here next to Edward Snowden, Julian Assange, and Chelsea Manning. The truth is, all of them are being persecuted, mistreated, and demonized for one thing and one thing only for having told the truth the whole truth and nothing but the truth about the misconduct of Western democracies <coughs> they are the skeletons in the closet of the West their persecution and mistreatment is what destroys the credibility of the West when the Western governments today protest the persecution of Alexei Navalny and of Roman Protasevich the responsible governments only laugh and ask, well, what about Edward Snowden, who's being protected in Russia? What about Julian Assange, who is in solitary confinement without having committed a crime, but telling the truth? What about Chelsea Manning, who was being persecuted to the point of almost dying in an attempted suicide? Whistleblowers and journalists who publish such information 
are inconvenient truth-tellers. They are inconvenient as the fire alarm in your house. When a fire goes off in your house and there is smoke, you hear the alarm. We all know the drill. We have to leave the house. We have to leave our work, our daily routine. It's inconvenient and many voices come up and say, just switch off the alarm. That is what these governments are trying to do when they persecute and isolate and silence these people. They're silencing the fire alarm in the building of democracy and the rule of law. And if I stand up here on this chair today, it is because I was the fire alarm in the United Nations for this case. I rang the alarm bell and I wrote the, to these governments and I informed the public, but they wanted to ignore the alarm. No one reacted. So we are inconvenient truth tellers, the four of us and the millions of others out there that speak the truth. Inconvenient truths. You can switch off the fire alarm for now and you'll feel comfortable for a couple more moments but the next time you open your eyes and you wake up and look around the whole building will be on fire and it is now in the hands of the public to react thank you Geneva for hosting us here thank you for giving us this platform I know this voice goes out to the world and that is the end of that chapter okay we have Ice Ice and Shane with us so, um, would either one of you like to come up here to speak to the reading? Just send up a little emoji if, if you are listening. <laughs> so, the chapter tomorrow is going to be... Okay, can't talk driving. <laughs> well, thanks, Ice Ice. <laughs> Um, I am so interested in what the outcome of this is going to be. We only have a few days left of 100 days of Colin, and I just wanted to thank everybody who's listening for participating. So tomorrow is going to be Chapter 13, British uh, Torture by Attrition, and oh, it's really going to be something. Um, I can read to you a little bit about some of the news that came out today, because I think what's coming to my realization is that I'm listening to people who say that they are the moral, better counterparts of our culture. They refer to Twitter as, as a journalistic nexus you know, that, that should have integrity. Yeah, I guess it should. But I don't believe that the platform itself had enough integrity to really match that label. So a bunch of people got laid off, probably because of the economy, in part, but also because they were not as useful as they thought they were in terms of uh, being integrity monitors. So I'm curious and interested about the jobs that will be uh, posted in the next couple of weeks for the transparency physicians because I had said on another program that they had not released a valid or relevant the word I used was relevant relevant transparency report since 2017 so they had gone completely 
inward, erected this biodome, this non-humble biodome where they are the paragon of all civic morality over there at Blue Check Twitter. And, you know, there was no room for dissent. There was no room. It, it felt so much like this reading that we're doing here where there, there, there's just, you know, there's this veneer of morality, but they could not suffer any kind of real debate about what was going on. They wouldn't confront their own misdeeds whatsoever. Very one-sided and dictatorial. And it only got worse because the pandemic allowed them to do this. So I feel like even though the transition to Elon Musk is imperfect. It has it has given them that particular platform the opportunity to to move over. But I think that journalists themselves are going to have to have a good look in the mirror about what journalism is and how it's financed and you know who it actually serves. Because this in the same conversation that I had with um, Stephen Miller here on the platform, the one thing that was said to me was that the consumer has become the product all the way around, that the New York Times has just become uh, another tech platform. And I'd never viewed it that way, but I think he's he's correct in his estimations. Because if, if the New York Times is, is a public platform as social media, like let's say it's another technology platform, well then the users become the products and so it's it becomes less about informing the public and the burden is, the, the economic outcome is more towards bilking them for data and using them for surveillance, like transactional surveillance, data valence and using that to, to sell to marketers, um, selling influence uh, to, to the consumer. And so you're waiting in suspended space for what you think is news, but what they're doing is they're using the force of a billboard to go straight up in front of you when you were on their platform. It's a very different idea about what's going on. and. You know whether the information has integrity. You know that discussion seems to be getting scuttled right and left behind the scenes. Blah, 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 blah. You know it's like it's like Oz. You know the Wizard of Oz has been discovered and rediscovered. We know he's back there, but he's not gone from his influence. Like he's still back there pulling levers and stuff, but he's not. He's not out from behind. The, the area where he can blow smoke and issue big cacophonous bellowing orders, you know, and, and make himself look all spooky and large, um, and then send flying monkeys after you. Get an army of flying monkeys that work for witches from behind the scenes to get after you. So that's what that platform has really become to me. You know, I don't know. Yeah, there's so much. I would say I went to the All Tech is Human blog, and I would say that almost every 
entry for the last week of any relevance that's up there is all about the the Elon Musk Twitter transition. They're obsessed. It's like there's no other platforms out there that are suffering from from the kind of the loss of delusion or disillusionment really. You know, cuz they want to control what the news is and how it's being seen and you know I don't think that that's that's correct. I mean, it, people have a right to circumspect or draw their own conclusions. They're not welcome to do it anymore. They're they're welcome to do it between their ears, but don't say it in public. Um, it, but that's not the purpose of a Twitter platform. You're supposed to be able to to elucidate. You're supposed to be able to say or talk back. That that was the purpose of the platform at the beginning, and it was a very different platform in 2010. You know, it it would throw these relevant uh, kind of conflicts in front of you that were like, "Hey, this is going on in the world." You know, Chinese deprivations over here. You know, different. You know, human rights violations over here. But we've discovered over time that. The relationships that these governments have with Twitter are different. So here's, here comes Joe Biden, telling this this uh, news posty, like, what are you gonna do about the governments approaching Twitter? And I'm thinking, okay, well, I think that they should talk about their own approach, like, like the government's own approach to Twitter, before they start state departmenting the rest of Twitter so that they can control U.S. speech because that's what it looked like. It just looked like it's like, well, we'll look into it. Like it's, We'll investigate. And everything now is an investigation. It's it's the search for a crime without, you know, an actual crime being done. So it's so much of our culture just kind of is in this, this uh, defaulted balloon payment to the to, to truth and reality. I appreciate everybody who stopped by to listen. Um, this has been the Unsanctioned Citizen. We will return tomorrow with more of our chapter reading and my bloviating about truth and reality uh, when it comes to the press. So I'll see you and look for you then. Thanks for listening. Before you go, hit the subscribe button. Remember that callers are welcome. Subscribers can access Unsanctioned Citizen podcast archives at Substack, Automatic, iHeartRadio podcasts, and call-in. Please stay in touch. We want to hear from you. Visit SheilaMDean.com.